You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions, and that's from the Dalai Lama. Happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. It does seem that way because right now there are people experiencing peace and joy and then there are others experiencing conflict. So it does appear that it comes from within us. I want to welcome you to our April the 9th, 2022 uh, off-the-shelf podcast for our loyal listeners, I have to stop and recognize you. Thank you for being with us. Going on here, we're in our 16th year. So thank you for being with, here with us from Rainbow Soul all the way to Blog Talk Radio. We're on iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Thank you for being here with us through this journey. And if this is your first time listening to Off the Shelf, I want to let you know that you absolutely are listening to the winning book podcast off the shelf and again welcome to our saturday april 9th show thank you thank you thank you for joining us excited to introduce you to a a wonderful author and leader who's on deck but that that will be in just a few minutes until we get to that i just want to encourage you you know the quote today happiness is not something ready made it comes from your own actions what we think what we believe what we dwell on focus on do etc cetera, etc cetera. it's also important to every day to live a good life and I, you see this and i see this myself one way that really easy to see it is where it comes to your physical fitness or your weight. You know, if you let yourself slide just three months, that scale is not going to be giving, making you smile. <laughs> and if you do the right thing for three months, that scale could make put a smile on your face. You could be smiling. It's day by day by day, not just with our health, but our, our emotions. Are we got, dealing with too much stress? It's, you got to pay attention to it all throughout the day. It's just it's it, it's instantaneous almost. And if you are somebody who's really committed to living internal external success, I recommend to you Pathways to Tremendous Success. It's a nonfiction book written by Denise Turney, and you can get it in print, hard book, or in ebook. Pathways to Tremendous Success by Denise Turney. Go bless yourself with a copy of Pathways to Tremendous Success. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. Today's off-the-shelf guest is Shirley Burnick, and Shirley is a novel and essay writer. She also mentors other writers, helping them to flesh out and develop their stories. Her work has been published in a, a, a myriad of periodicals, including Reader's Digest. That used to be Huge when I was coming up. Reader's Digest, Cosmopolitan, and Good Housekeeping. And you can also, her works have also won commendations like the, this is a very impressive, you guys, the American Library Association's Best Fiction Books for Young Readers, the Simon Weisenthal Once Upon a World Book Award, and the Sydney Taylor Book Award. So kudos to Shirley. Shirley graduated from Cornell University. Uh, she runs uh, storybee.org, and that's S-T-O-R-Y-B-E-E.org, S-T-O-R-Y-B-E-E.org. That's a free storytelling platform. And in addition, she fosters dogs, and she is also the author of the books Ripped Away, Falling Stars, The Bloodline, and The Black Butterfly. Please check Shirley Vernick out online at Shirley uh, it looks like Shirley Ravernick. So I'm going to spell it, and hopefully she'll correct me if I don't have it right. S-H-I-R-L-E-Y-R-E-V-A-E-R-N-I-C-K.com. I hopefully, hopefully I spelled it right. So we are absolutely honored to have Shirley join us on Off the Shelf this morning. I'm going to bring her on live. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Shirley. Hi, Denise. Thanks so much, and thank you for the important reminder to take care of ourselves inside and out. 
Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for being here. Did I spell the website URL right? Because I, we, we have listeners who do yes, it live. it's fine. And so it is S-H-I-R-L-E-Y-R-E-V-A-V-E-R-N-I-C-K to our off-the-shelf listeners. So, again, welcome. Mm-hmm. Now, Shirley, the very first few questions that I ask, I ask every guest. I'm going back to the start when I started off the shelf. I used to just go right into the questions. I mean, I was very new at it. And listeners emailed me and said, "You don't do that. We want to know a little bit about the guests before you start asking them about their books. So the first two questions I ask every guest who comes on, just to give our listeners a little backstory on the guests. So to kick off this episode of Off the Shelf, Shirley, can you tell our listeners where you grew up and where life, what life was like for you growing up? Absolutely. I grew up in a village in northern New York, uh, right on the Canadian border on the St. Lawrence River, uh, Messina, New York. And it was really a great small place to grow up. There wasn't a lot to do, um, but I think that that helped foster my creativity um, and that of other people, uh, kids growing up there. Um, Especially in the summers, uh, we kids sort of ran feral. You know, we were just outside all day long the old-fashioned way, coming in for feedings (laughs) and to sleep. Um, I am uh, the youngest of five siblings um, and had two working parents. So... It wasn't that easy to get one-on-one attention uh, with that uh, kind of setting. But I think, the, as I remember it, the best way for me to get that kind of one-on-one undivided attention was to ask somebody, a parent or an older sibling, uh, to read to me. And I think that was the beginning of the journey for me of just associating stories with that kind of uh, nesting and nestling and um, individualized attention. And that really helped me fall in love with stories and books. And uh, then I decided I wanted to try writing some myself. And I remember as a preschooler uh, just scribbling on any kind of scrap of paper or back of a napkin and handing it to my mother. And genius that she was, she would read off this beautiful prose or poetry. And I remember thinking, wow, if I can do that before I even know how to make my letters, imagine what I can do once... I can actually read and write. And that was a big um, motivator for me and boost of confidence that really carried me throughout. And one other thing I'll say about where I'm from and my growing up is that my very first novel, The Blood Lie, uh, is based on a real event that happened in my hometown of Messina when my father was growing up there. There was a blood libel in which uh, a young Gentile child disappeared. In truth, she had only gotten lost while playing in the woods in the back of her house. And the Jewish community was accused of kidnapping her, murdering her, and draining her blood for use in some sort of ritual libation. And... The rumor spread and people bought into it and the state police who were in charge of the missing child investigation bought into it and they diverted their search from the woods where the little girl was um, to a search and inter- a search of Jewish properties, interrogations of Jewish individuals, including the rabbi and a lot of threats uh, being issued from the streets about physical violence. Um, 
Fortunately for everyone concerned, the little girl stumbled back out of the woods, right where she had been playing sometime, some hours later. But still people believed it, and uh, a rather devastating boycott was levied on uh, Jewish businesses. So um, that was a very sobering and frightening experience for people at the time, and it was kind of hushed up afterward, but I wanted to bring it uh, to life in a meaningful way for young readers. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Good for you. You know, it's amazing. I I was watching this this, uh, documentary, this guy, he decided he's born, his family was Hindu, but he was sort of became agnostic, and he, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but they had an Indian, uh, as far as the ethnicity, the back, it was Indian, so he decided to do this test, a documentary, and I'm using this to make a point, he said he's going to say he's a guru, he said in India so many people would say they're a guru, and it is a fake, and, and in other countries, so and I'm saying this for a reason. What you said is extremely serious with the bloodline, so what happened. But so he did, and so many people believed him. He made up so much stuff during yoga, the blue light exercise. He said he totally made that up. And then people, wow. one woman was a yoga instructor. instructor. She, they believed in it. They thought he was a guru, and he kept saying there is no real guru. This is an illusion. It's fake. What you need is really inside of you. So... But this other lady who uh, taught a yoga class, she started teaching the blue light, and I'm like, oh, my God. They, one woman lost 70 pounds just believing. They thought he was this special person, and she lost 70 pounds and kept it off. So uh, I guess so they, but he later revealed himself to them and told them, it's, I'm not who you think I am. And how easily, this is the point I made, how easily, as humans, we can believe a lie. It is, it is, it is so. For, for whatever reason, it could have racial background, it could have religious, and it's not even true. And we just and we run with it, and then we tell everybody is, oh, he felt so special, and it's nothing. There is no, there are no special people. When you said that about bloodlines, it made me think about that was a total lie. A total, complete lie, and those people chose to believe it. And now, when they when it's it's it's, it's revealed to them, the girl comes out of the woods. Okay, you just believed a complete lie instead of looking like an idiot. Now you bury it and say we're just not going to discuss that. <laughs> That's right, and and also they said that well, the Jews tried to kill her. They got as far as kidnapping her, but somehow she got away. So it's really impressive how uh, rumors can spread uh, dangerously and yeah. how once a person believes something, oh my their mind filters out uh, refuting evidence. So oh my it's, it's really something to be aware of and to talk about. And and it's dangerous. Thank God that you, you you're bringing that out in your your stories. It's dangerous. It, it's, there are people whose lives have been taken because of a lie, and somebody just believed it. Now I want to ask you this. You said you started working with stories. You grew up in this village in New York that was close to the Canadian border, small town. That's where you think your creativity kind of was birthed. But when you were a little girl, what did you dream of becoming? What did you say, when I grew up, I want to be? Right. Uh, You know, I am one of those people who, as far back as I can remember, wanted to be a writer. Um, wow. And I think it was from my growing up with a love of story and a feeling that I could write. I didn't know how to make it real, of course, when I was younger. And I think every writer has to find their own path to that. And I remember going through a period where when somebody would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, a poet. And Mm. they would chuckle because you don't go out and be a poet 
the way you might go out and be a teacher or a postal worker or a dentist. Um, but it was always there with me, and I was always sort of writing and thinking of stories. My very first what I call professional publication, meaning I got some money for it, wasn't until I was in high school, and I submitted an original quip or pun to Reader's Digest more toward more picturesque speech uh, column that they had. And the pun was a question. Is a belly dancer a waste of energy? And waste was spelled like the body part that a belly dancer moves, W-A-I-S-T, and I got $35, and um, I was very excited about it, and, um, you know, even so, once I became a little older, like when I was in an an adolescent, I developed the fear, I guess, there's no, no other way to describe it, the fear that I wouldn't be able to support myself as a writer. And how were you? How maybe, were you? I'm sorry, Shirley. How were you when you developed that fear? How were you? I'm curious. How old was you I? Said how, yeah, when you developed I that. I was at the time when I was starting to look into colleges, so it would have been oh, okay. 16. Okay. Okay. And trying to figure out what do I want to do with my adult life professionally? Mm. Um, do I want to take this risk? And I. Or do I just want to make writing a hobby? And I did not major in writing or journalism or anything like that in school. Um, I did write for the student newspaper and magazine, and I did things on the side, but I majored in economics, actually. Um, And even in my first job, I sort of backed into writing by working with a large public relations firm where I was doing promotional business writing. And then I began to freelance as uh, doing uh, feature articles for magazines and other venues and getting jobs that were really more educational writing, not promotional writing. And it wasn't until, you know, into adulthood that I took the plunge and decided that I was going to write a book. And I knew that the first book I was going to write was going to be a fictionalized version of the blood libel that happened in Messina, which I titled The Blood Lie. And the way I even found out about that occurrence because as I had said it had been hushed up was that when I was in college not taking any writing classes um, my sociology professor sent us all home for fall break which was a long weekend in October with an assignment wherever home was wherever we were going we had to identify a community-wide conflict either past or present and write a paper analyzing it and I still remember the four-hour drive home thinking I'm sunk because nothing controversial or juicy or exciting happens in placid little old Messina so when I got home I asked my dad if he knew of anything and that's when he told me for the first time about what happened and how his family's store was searched um, you know, with the state police thinking that they might find a little girl's body or body parts and, wow. and the rest of the story. And I knew starting then that it wasn't just a, a paper that I was going to write about this read by one person that I really wanted to explore um, this in longer form for a more general audience. Oh, my goodness. It, 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 you know, it's funny listening to you, very intriguing how your past, you know, you talked about you, 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 when you started looking into colleges, you weren't sure, could I make a career, enough money, 
as a writer, and then instead of pursuing, you majored in economics, and you, and then this path that you took sort of led you to to, to find something out, you know, in the community or family you're from, and then you come upon this what becomes the the blood lie. Now, was is the blood lie? Is this your first the first novel you ever wrote? That's right. Okay. How much research be, be, beyond talking to your father and your family, where you you learned about this? How much other research did you pull? Was there anything? I mean, you said they just people kind of just hushed it up. But was there anything in the newspaper? Was there anything you could pour through in the library? Any research to dig up even more details about this event as you started to write the blood lie? Right. There was nothing in the local or regional media at the time, which which was would have been newspapers. It did actually get covered briefly in the New York Times um, oh. and some other media. So I had those articles. And it was covered, there were some scholarly articles written in Jewish publications. Um, and there were a couple other local people that I was able to talk. Um, but there there wasn't a lot, but the, between the people I was able to talk to who experienced it and the other coverage that I just mentioned, I was able to put it together. Um, years ago, somebody actually wrote a nonfiction book about uh, oh. the blood libel in Messina as, I believe, as part of his Ph.D. dissertation. I think it basically was his Ph.D. dissertation. And I read it, but I knew that it had been uh, criticized for a lot of factual inaccuracies. Um, But it still helped me sort of um, put the skeleton of it together. So how long did this go on? Was this like, so this little girl was missing, what, a couple of hours? Or was she missing like a few days? No, she was, it was hours, but it included overnight because oh. she fell asleep and nobody was looking for her after certain, you know, after the rumor started. So um, it was overnight. Um, and I actually was able to meet this woman when I met her. Um, this was actually after the book came out. And she's an older woman at at this point, an octogenarian. She told me that she she was about four years old. <laughs> Pardon me when it happened. Oh my goodness! And she remembers it, but it it didn't significantly impact her life. It was like she went out in the woods, she got lost her way, got tired, curled up and fell asleep. It wasn't cold. And came back out of the woods later. Um, oh my and God! And whole, that was her experience wow. of it. And a whole story had what? Did, did, in your research, and I want to talk about the, the characters in the book next, because this is a it's, your book is fictional based on a real life event. But um, where did that? Where I'm just curious, who came up with this concept of what actually happened that? Where did this even come from? Where, when you research, yeah. did you did you find out where it's so it's such an insane idea? Yes. a kid gets lost, and where did that even come from? The the blood libel, which is the sort of generic term for this accu- accusing Jewish communities of taking Gentile children for you know horrible purposes. That has a very long history, like centuries, if not more, longer history, primarily in Eastern Europe, um, uh, like Russia and uh, other, you know, Eastern European countries. And it was often used as the lie of the blood libel, you know, it was always a lie, 
was often levied as an excuse to launch a pogrom, which was violence against Jewish communities. And, you know, sometimes the anti-Semites would just out of nowhere say, the Jewish community stole one of our children, drained, wow. drained his or her blood, etc. And sometimes if anything happened to somebody in the Gentile community, such as somebody drowned or, you know, disappeared or was injured, then that would be an excuse to launch it. And it, it's, it's not over. I mean, it still happens and it happens in various places in the world. And it's really a scourge that, you know, I hope I brought to light, as I said, in a meaningful way. You know, and you see it even in countries where darker-skinned people, brown, darker brown-skinned people, if something happens, you know, it was a darker person, and, and you get right. no no evidence, no evidence whatsoever, and it it can create an entire movement. It, it just it's just shocking to me that as humans we would yes. choose to, to to believe a lie without evidence and mistreat people. No evidence. None. It's just it's shocking. Now, can you tell us about some of the major? Who are some of the major and minor characters in the blood lie who helped to drive this story forward? Yes. So uh, the major, the main character is Jack. He is. Um, I I I I modeled him partly after my father. Um, he is uh, in high school, and he is a you know belongs to the Jewish community, and his family has a dry goods store, and he is the one who initially gets accused, like him as an individual, of having kidnapped and killed and mutilated this girl who disappeared. Um, and then eventually it spreads to, you know, the accusations to the entire Jewish community. The very fictional element that I added to this story is a, a love interest that Jack and the missing girl's older sister uh, like each other. And they know that it's, forbidden because she's Christian and he's Jewish and at the time that's forbidden. This is the year 1928. Um, But it doesn't stop them from wanting to be with each other. And then to layer the accusations on top of it um, makes things just extra tense and high stakes. So those are the two main characters in the story. I mean, obviously, the the missing little girl, Daisy, uh, her, her getting lost is sort of the um, the activating incident, but you don't see much of her. You just see, you know, a little bit of her at, at the end. The rabbi in town uh, plays a major role because he's interrogated and, um, is a galvanizing force in the Jewish community. And then the uh, setting is filled with um, supporting characters such as Jack's family, Emmeline's family, the townsfolk who uh, have different differing points of view, the state police, and the person who starts the rumor is somebody who is an immigrant from a city in Europe that was known to be have a lot of anti-Semitism and uh, be the home of antagonism toward the Jews. Oh, my goodness. I don't want you to give the story away. Uh, hopefully nobody, you know, is really like, there's no great destruction comes to anybody. I don't want you to get us thrown away. Just, just what you told is enough to get 
to you know make pique interest and want to know more about the blood lie. That said, what have readers been saying about the book? What have you been hearing from readers about it? What I have heard uh, from readers, and that includes young readers and teachers and librarians and others, uh, is surprise bordering on incredulity that something like this could really have happened in the U.S. of A. in, you know, contemporary, you know, sort of contemporary times, Um, and uh, that, you know, some some people are, most I would say, are very glad to learn about this and to want to talk about it, and some really felt like, I just can't believe this happened, or, uh, you know, and a couple of people said, why are you, a couple of people from Messina said, why are you writing about this now? Um. Are you trying to stir up trouble for the town? Oh, my goodness. Um, Which definitely was not my intention. I had a wonderful opportunity, though, shortly after the book came out. I contacted the local library in Messina and said, you know, would you like to do something together around this book? And... They got so excited that they developed a whole weekend around the book and and the concept of blood libels and the history of Messina. And they got a professor from a not-too-far-away university to talk about it, and they invited me to talk about it, and I went into the schools and talked about it. And I just felt like it really kind of aired out things. It allowed people to learn about what happened, to know about it, to state their opinions. That's where I finally met in person the now octogenarian who was the little girl who got lost. And it was just a wonderful experience. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. You know, when you come out with a book like that, you're going to get a a different uh, different types of responses from people. It's amazing, though, when, again, a lie like that, how damaging, and whoever starts those lies, I think they, they intend to create harm and do damage. And then right. when it's revealed it's a lie, it's almost like, okay, now let's all pretend it never happened. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of people got right. hurt. So it's kind of hard for yeah. them to pretend it never happened. Maybe easier for you, but not that, so hard for the one who was injured. That's right. Uh, good. Good for you. The blood, the blood lie, you guys, by Shirley Burnick. Now I want to talk away. You do your book covers. I really encourage you all to visit Shirley Burnick at her website. And I want to give you the URL to her website again. It's S H I R L E Y R E B A B E R N I C K dot com. You got to check out her book covers. So I wanted to ask you next about. Talk about another one of your books. Who illustrated the cover for Ripped Away? I absolutely love that book cover. Thank you. I'm really pleased with that book cover, too. And that is my latest book. It was just released in February of this year. And that book cover was designed by a a designer that my publisher works directly with. Um, so it really came from Regal House Publishing, um, who is the publisher for that book. And I was delighted that uh, my editor and publisher there invited me before there was any, any uh, you know, pencil put to paper on, on the design, what my thoughts were. And we had a conversation about what it should look like, you know, just in general terms, color scheme, thinking about the audience. And when they uh, presented the cover to me, I just, I couldn't have been happier. It, I think it really evokes uh, the mood and uh, speaks to the, um, the target audience. 
Yeah, you did. It's, it's just awesome. I love your book covers. Now, how long have you been interested in time travel? What 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 piqued your interest in time travel? Oh well, I have pretty much always been interested in the general category of speculative fiction as a reader, uh, science fiction. Uh, magical realism, fantasy, alternate histories. That's just something that um, I enjoy as a reader. And I'll tell you how I came to this book being a time travel book. Um, Ripped Away, uh, it explores, it's it's actually... um, thematically similar to The Blood Lie in that it explores the experience of Jewish refugees to London during the Jack the Ripper spree when xenophobia ran really high and uh, relative newcomers were under suspicion of being the Ripper, especially the Jewish immigrants who had fled the pogroms and uh, blood libels from uh, Eastern Europe. Um, And uh, let me see. Um, I sort of lost my train of thought here. I was was going somewhere with this. Um, Just the back, you were were going over the background of the story, really, on Ripped Away. Yes, yes. And um, the time travel, I'm sorry. I, I knew I was coming back to time travel. I just couldn't remember how. So I actually wrote the book, the first draft, a full first draft, as straight historical fiction about two youngsters who were grow- born, raised, and growing up in the tenements of London during the Jack the Ripper spree. And then, as I always do, with my drafts. I, once I wrote it, I put it in a drawer to sort of let it fix and then let my head clear. And when I came back to it, I decided that really a contemporary voice with modern sensibilities would speak better to young readers since this is an upper middle grade slash early YA novel. And that's how I came to the idea of time travel, um, because that would allow me to be in the scene of the year 1888, the year of Jack the Ripper, but have contemporary voices, backgrounds, um, and concepts. And I bet you kids love that. That that, and even adults like like the um, the time travel. Where, where in particular, this is your latest book. We know where you got the idea for The Blood Lie. Where did you get the idea for Ripped Away? Well, let's see. That, I, I love that question because um, it's, it's interesting to me how people get their ideas. Um, the very short answer is I happened to read about what happened to the Jewish community in London during Jack the Ripper. The longer answer is that, um, you know, I never took an elective history class all the way through my education um, because the history classes that I was required to take, they all – you know, they were just, it felt like a slog through dates and battles and maps, and it was cold and it was distant, and it just wasn't that much fun to read or write about it. I'm, I'm uh, somewhat chagrined to confess. Um, but then, actually, this relates to that paper I wrote about the blood libel in Messina and how I found out about it when I discovered that like real history had had happened and it affected like my people and my family, it just cast a whole new relationship between me and history. And I became addicted to history content in forms of 
on my own in the forms of, you know, novels, nonfiction books, journals, films, and later on podcasts and websites, and just doing random Googles about contemporary history. And on some Googles, the year 1888 is considered contemporary history. And it was just down one of those rabbit holes that I read about it, and I was really surprised that I had never heard about this angle um, about Jack the Ripper. Because I had read about Jack the Ripper, and I watched the, uh, you know, the Ripper series with Benedict Cumberbatch, et cetera, and I had never heard about it. And I figured probably a lot of people have not. Yeah, you're coming upon some things. Like you said, the one story, uh, The Blood Lie, was covered, you know, some by the New York Times. But these are stories, you hear about Jack the Ripper, but the the the, the angle you're taking and ripped away, you, you you just don't hear it. You don't hear about You don't hear about it. So I, I love that about your writing. You like pulling back the covers on different things. Now, why does Thank Abe you. visit a fortune teller, and is this a big no-no for him to do this? Yeah, Um, well, in the story, the reason Abe visits a fortune teller is that he's just gotten dissed once again by Mitzi, the girl he has a big crush on, and he's walking home from school, and he just happens to notice the sign for the fortune teller that he's never noticed before, Um, and I leave it unexplained whether he didn't notice it, he just never noticed it, or if it just, you know, is new or sort of magically appeared. Um, So he's just looking for a diversion, and he wanders in. Um, Is it a no-no? Short answer is no, not among, you know, if you're asking, like, from a a religious background, um, you know, Orthodox and and um, or ultra Orthodox people might say no to fortune telling, even though there's evidence from it in you know Jewish um, scripture and other writings. But you know, for sort of a modern assimilated Jewish youngster to you know at a at a county fair or, you know, somebody with a storefront to just go in and, you know, have your palm read kind of a thing is, it's okay. Okay. Introduce us to Abe Perlman. What's he like? What, what, how old is he? What's he like? And what, what drives him? What drives him? Um, I never exactly say what Abe's age is, but he's sort of, you know, early to mid-adolescent, so, you know, 14, 15. And he's, from the outside looking in, he might be what one would call a nerd or a geek. He doesn't really have friends. He doesn't really socialize. He's into his schoolwork. He's quiet. He wants to be a writer. Um, and he's kind of bored with his with his vanilla life of um you know, going to school, going home, doing homework, not really having much to do on the weekends. And he's hoping that something different or exciting will happen. Uh, He just has no idea that it's about to happen and it's not what he would have wished for. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Now, who you are very good about talking about your books. Who who is Mincy Singer and why has she been banished? Mitzi is the Abe's classmate and he has a crush on her and he has for a long time and she doesn't even seem to know he's alive. Um and she's um if we're gonna give labels, she's like a goth girl, she dresses in black, she has a lot of, you know, earrings in one ear, she has blue hair, um, that kind of thing. And she gets banished to London because for whatever reason, she, after Abe went to the 
um, fortune teller, she drops in and has a similar but not identical experience. So she ends up also in the same tenement building uh, in East London in 1888, um, but, you know, belonging to a different new family, but, uh, you know, just one floor apart from each other. So in this time travel, when when the book starts, what what year is it? And then these kids go to the fortune teller, and then something happens, and they go back in time. What time is it? What's going on? What time is it at the beginning of this? The uh, at the beginning, it's just now. Um, ah. So, you know, it's for whenever you're reading the book, it's now. It's now. It's okay. in the U.S. Yeah. Interesting. They must have really. These kids must have really been freaked out. Oh, and, oh my God! Yeah, yeah. It would, I would, and I, it would was, take me years to even probably or months at the minimum. To, what is going on? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, yes. And that was part wow. of the fun and challenge of writing this story is how to communicate how freaked out these kids are. Oh my God! Given that they can't really say such to their new families, and they don't know each other is there right away, so wow. it it's sort of like an internal kind of freak out because they know people would think that they were crazy if they said this yeah. isn't who I am and this isn't where I belong <laughs> or when I belong. Yeah, like, hey, have you guys seen a cell phone? And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. It I was, wish it I was, could Google that, yep. <laughs> yes. Now, in what ways is this fortune teller's prophecy, well, if, and hopefully if it gives a story away, then don't answer it, but in what ways is the fortune teller's prophecy linked to this actual real-life crime? How is it linked if, if it doesn't give the story away? Right. Um, the fortune teller's prophecy to Abe is that he may be able to save someone's life. And before he can ask any questions, he gets immediately whisked away to Victorian London. Um, So to the question of how does it relate to the, the crimes, the Ripper crimes, Abe doesn't know if it does. He doesn't know if he's supposed to save somebody who would be the Ripper's next victim. He doesn't know if it's something totally unrelated. He has to figure it out. Man, your imagination. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) Do you like science fiction by any chance? Just curious. I do love science fiction. I do yeah, love to read science fiction, and I I include that under that whole umbrella of what I call speculative fiction. But I am a big reader of that, and my book group is not. My book group likes realistic fiction or nonfiction, so I have to go solo for my sort of wilder reading forays. You know, there's a big audience, though, for this type of, of fiction that you write, and and um, uh, when did I hear this really coming on now? I heard something uh, just a couple of days ago, but it's the type of story some people might think that wouldn't be real popular, but that are hugely, hugely popular and grow- growing in popu- popularity. Now, we already just touched on your imagination. You can, I love to hear you. I absolutely love to hear you talk about your stories. Now, You've got this imagination. What you, I don't know if your imagination seems so lively that you said you put you write the draft, you put it down, and then you return to it. What writing process do you follow to even get all of this out of your imagination on the paper? Do you use outlines, character sketches? How do you go from ideal to actually starting to write the story? You know, I am not an outliner or a planner with my writing. I am very much a pantser, seat of the pants kind of writer. 
um, where I start out with maybe a nugget of a plot idea, or sometimes I just sort of hear a character's voice in my head and I don't even know what plot goes with it. And I just have to take that leap of faith and start writing what it is that's in my head. And once I have characters in a setting, I pretty much let them duke it out on the page. I have tried a couple of times with my books to outline and to do, you know, like the character sketches and backgrounds. And it end, has ended up being a futile effort because uh-huh. I get 15 pages into it and the characters are saying, no, that's not what I would do. That's not what I would say. That's not how I would interact with that person. So um, I just, uh, you know, in the rest of my life, I'm a planner, but in my writing I'm not. You know, and some people aren't, and they say that works for them. And I'm more like you, but then there are people who swear, swear by outlines and character sketches. That's what that's what works for them. Now, can you share, and and with with your your creative ideas, once you as a writer you're able to make it work, that's when you pull in the readers because the story is so interesting. Now, can you share three to four steps, Shirley, that you take? that you've personally found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? Yes. Um, well, first of all, if uh, somebody is lucky enough to have a publisher that does a good amount of marketing and promotion, that's wonderful. And that may be the case and it may not be the case and it may or may not depend on the size of the publisher. But Things that a writer can do sort of on their own or at least initiated by them are, they're out there. Um, One thing is to be active on social media. And that doesn't, to me, mean constantly saying, you know, posting, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. But doing a cover reveal in advance, with a link to pre-orders, initiating like threads or conversations about something that's relevant to the book, Um, getting into like I belong to a, a middle grade Twitter chat group and interacting, get to interact with librarians and readers and other writers. Um, I have done in the past, like on social media events, um, you know, where I just make myself available, say, on Facebook for a certain hour to field questions or comments, things like that. Um, Another thing is to have an author website um, that looks professional, doesn't mean you have to hire somebody and pay thousands of dollars, although, you know, plenty of people do that, but just looks professional, has information about you, how to contact you uh, about your books um, and your other activities. Um, And then something that I like to do is to complement what the publisher does in terms of publicity with some of my own pitches to um, like blogs or book reviewers who I think are in my target my my target media, um, but that my publisher doesn't send to. Um, you could go crazy with that, um, but I so I I wouldn't advise people to you know, go crazy, but, you know, you can do simple searches about, you know, top, um, like top book bloggers for a certain audience or something like that. Um, And then I guess finally I would suggest if 
you have it in your budget and your time allows to um, engage with book festivals or conference or book related conferences. I have not done a lot of that, but I've done some, even just author meet and greets. And um, it can be a good way to get out there and influential folks. I really appreciate you sharing those tips because a lot of our listeners are, are authors and a lot of you, of course, are book lovers as well. But um, that one, the attending writing events, we know with COVID, a lot of things went virtual. That has been, was extremely helpful for me to go to events that bring in hundreds or thousands of people. They're coming there to look for books. Right. They're coming there. They get to meet you, the author, in person. And, I mean, that's a good way. I don't know if it's even almost possible if you you get up and you engage with people. I don't think it's possible to attend one of those and not sell books. If, you, if you're engaging, that, that's been my experience. I found it to be, even, not a, even just at the event, but for weeks after attending that event, I could see the spike in my book sales. So I, I, that's one I definitely uh, recommend. We're coming down to less than uh, four minutes left. And I have so many other questions that I wanted to ask you, but I definitely want to get this one in. Can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where they can get copies of your books? And we didn't even get around to talking about the Black Butterfly, but where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your book, Shirley? Thank you so much. Uh, the books, my books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, you know, really all the major ordering sites. Um, also, if you go to my website, which is my full name, ShirleyRevaVernick.com, there's information there and purchase buttons that will link you uh, to Amazon and, okay. and are also you, directly through the publisher. Okay, and are you on – and what's the publisher's name? Tell us again, please, for those who might be going, looking uh, down that path. For, for Ripped Away, the publisher is Regal House Publishing. And for my other books, it's Lee and Lowe. Okay, okay. Now, if you're on any social networks, you talked earlier when we were talking about book marketing to, to work social media and you get tips on that. But if you're on any social networks, where are some, how, what are some networks where off-the-shelf listeners can find you? Thank you. I find myself most active on Twitter, and that's at Shirley Vernick. I'm also on Facebook, Shirley Reva Vernick. And uh, I'm just dipping my toes into Instagram, really. I'm kind of late to the game with that. Okay, okay. Are you? And are you, do you have any up, other upcoming speaking engagements, podcasts, radio, in-person events? And if so, could you share some of those upcoming events with our listeners? Thank you for asking. You know, I just finished a a uh, sort of spree of engagements, and I'm only in the process of making plans for my my next batch. So I, I really don't have anything that I can uh, promise, but it will be on my website when when I do have them scheduled. Okay. Oh, my goodness, what a joy. I loved hearing you talk about your books. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you so much, The, the way you talk... You, if you do attend writing events, you should sit on a panel and answer questions about your <laughs> books because then people will be running to grab a copy of your books. We have been so, so blessed to have Shirley Burnick with us. And she's the, uh, she's the her works have appeared pre-decided as Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping. She's won American Library Association's. Best Fiction Books for Young Readers is Simon Weisenthal, Once Upon a World Book Award, and Sydney Taylor book awards and she's the author of ripped away falling stars the the blood lion the black butterfly please visit shirley vernick out online at s-h-i-r-l-e-y-r-e-d-a-b-e-r-n-i-c-k.com what a what a pleasure for those of you who came in midstream or you you, you had things to do this morning you cut cast the show late and you're like oh my god i missed the show no worries once it finishes streaming you can go back and listen to it and share it and listen to it as much as you want in the archives, which should be up later later today. Thank you, Shirley, and to all of our listeners, as I always tell you, thank you, first of all. Put a note on your calendar. You're going to catch 
off-the-shelf books live Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. Remember, Saturdays, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. We will we will bring you another awesome another awesome author and guest. We've had we've had movie producers on, we've had songwriters on, all things story come on to off the shelf. Wanna thank Shirley and as I again as I always tell you as our listeners, you are awesome. You are incredible. You are absolutely amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Shirley, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll send you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Bye for now. <laughs>